Amen. All right, well, we're there in Luke chapter 8, and of course, we are making our way through the Gospel of Luke, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, in a series called Journey with Jesus. We've been in Luke chapter 8 uh, for a while, and, uh, you know, if you're wondering how long we're going to be in Luke 8, there's just so many great stories in this one chapter uh, that we've got to just cover them all. Uh, but tonight, we come to this very well-known passage of Scripture uh, where the disciples find themselves in the midst of a storm, and the Lord Jesus Christ is with them. The problem is he's asleep. In Luke chapter 8 and verse 22, you'll notice there the Bible says, Now it came to pass on a certain day that he went into a ship with his disciples, and he said unto them, Let us go over unto the other side of the lake. And they launched forth, but as they sailed, he fell asleep. I want you to notice these words, and there came down a storm of wind on the lake, and they were filled with water and were in jeopardy. Here the Bible tells us that they get on this boat, they get onto the Sea of Galilee, and as they're making their way, this storm of wind comes upon the lake, and all of a sudden the ship is now filled with water. The Bible tells us that they're in jeopardy. The word jeopardy means danger or loss of danger of loss or danger of harm. And you've got to keep in mind that the men that Jesus was with on this ship are fishermen. Uh, For the most part, they're fishermen by trade. And being out in the sea is something they did for a profession, something they did for a living. Specifically, being out in the Sea of Galilee. This is where these men worked. These were professional Uh, seamen, they were professional uh, fishermen, and these guys got worried. So you know you're in trouble when the guys who do this for a living are are worried, and this uh, storm comes, and the Bible says that they're afraid, and to add a little bit of insult to injury, notice there in verse 23, but as they sailed, he fell asleep. I want to speak to you tonight on this subject of how to handle the storms of life. See, in the Christian life, we often have trials and tribulations, difficulties. And in the Bible, you'll notice, especially in the Gospels, we can learn a lot. Uh, There's this theme throughout the Gospels of these men, and also in the book of Acts, being out at sea and having storms come in. And we can learn from these storms, these lessons, when we use them as an allegory because of the fact that In our lives, we are going to go through what we refer to as the storms of life. Uh, In the Christian life, there are times when things are going well, and you've got some, you know, just uh, peaceful sailing, and then there are other times when things are not going well, when these storms come into our lives, and we end up having to deal uh, with these uh, trials. See, in marriage, uh, you may experience storms uh, in times of difficulty, times that you go through these uh, storms in your marriage, or it may be in parenting. Sometimes uh, in parenting, as you're raising children, there are storms that come into those relationships and difficulties. It may be a uh, difficulty in your career, maybe a difficulty with finances, maybe a difficulty with uh, health. The truth is this, that as you live the Christian life, you'll find that we experience these storms of life. In fact, I've often said that in the Christian life, you 
you are either in a storm, you are coming out of a storm, or you're getting ready to go into a storm, because the Christian life is that. It is, a, it is often these storms that we deal with. It is often these times that we find ourselves where it seems like everything around us is going crazy. Everything is uh, falling apart. And the problem that we often find with these storms as we go through them is that we often feel as though God doesn't care, as though God is absent, as though God is not paying attention. And this is exactly what these men felt like, because as they're going through this storm, they've got the Lord Jesus Christ with them. But again, if you look at verse 23 there, the Bible says, as they failed, he fell asleep. Now you're there in Luke chapter 8, that's our text for tonight, but go with me if you would to the book of Mark. If you just go back one book into the book of Mark, of course, you know as we've been studying this, uh, this, the, this uh, gospel of Luke, we've been often comparing with other gospels what are called parallel passages where you find the same story and we get different details and different things are told to us. In Mark chapter 4 and verse 38, we have a parallel passage to this story. Mark chapter 4 and verse 38. The Bible says, and he was, there we go, and he was in the hinder part of the ship. Notice these words. Asleep on a pillow. And they awake him and say unto him, Master, notice these words. Carest thou not that we perish? Here you've got these disciples on this ship, in this storm, and they feel the same way that many of us often feel when we are going through trials and tribulations. And it is this prayer of grief that they have when they wake the Lord Jesus Christ and ask, Carest thou not that we perish? Do you not care? You are asleep. I love how it says here in Mark 4.38 that he was asleep on a pillow. And they awake him and say unto him, Master, carest thou not? that we perish. Uh, go, go with me if you would to the book of Psalms, Psalm 44. If you open up your Bible just right in the center, you'll more than likely fall in the book of Psalms, Psalm 44. See, the problem with the storms of life is that we tend to feel like maybe God doesn't know what we're going through, or maybe God doesn't care what we're going through, or maybe even worse of all, that God isn't even in control of what we're going through. And oftentimes, uh, people, you, you say it's a peculiar story because you have Jesus asleep on the ship, his head laying on a pillow while the ship is being tossed and turned. Water is getting into the ship. These professional fishermen are afraid. Their lives are in jeopardy. They finally wake him up and they ask the question, Master, carest thou not that we perish? And they're offended at the fact that he's asleep. And oftentimes, we may not verbalize that and say it, but when we're going through the storms of life and things are not going well and they're not getting better and things don't look like they're going to end up well, we often feel like God is asleep, that God is asleep at the wheel, 
Notice here in Psalm 44 and verse 23, notice this cry of grief uh, from the psalmist in Psalm 44 and verse 23. Notice what he says up to God. He says, Awake! Why sleepest thou, O Lord? Arise, cast not off forever. Notice verse 24. Wherefore hidest thou thy face and forgettest our affliction and our oppression? We know, of course, that God does not sleep. We know that God is aware of all. But oftentimes, when we're going through the storms of life, we feel like these disciples felt with Jesus, the Lord of glory, on the ship, asleep. So there's some things we can learn in regards to this passage. There's some things we can learn about how to handle the storms of life. Because here's what I know about you, and here's what I know about myself, is that we're either going through a storm, we're coming out of a storm, or we're getting ready to go into a storm. The Christian life is going to be a life where you are going to deal with trials and tribulations until the rapture, until we are in our glorified bodies in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ in heaven. You are going to deal with storms. So the question is, how do we deal with it? Let me give you quickly tonight four thoughts in regards to how to handle the storms of life. Number one, if you're taking notes tonight, and I would encourage you to take notes on the back of your course of the week, there's a place for you to write some things down. Number one, in regards to dealing with the storms of life, we must first trust his purpose. Once you notice there in Luke chapter 8 and verse 22, the Bible says, Now it came to pass on a certain day that he, referring to Jesus, went into a ship with his disciples, and he said unto them, I want you to notice, whose idea it was to get on the ship to begin with, whose idea it was to sail out into the uh, Sea of Galilee to begin with, whose idea it was for them to go on this trip. Here the Bible tells us that he, Jesus, said unto them, the disciples, let us go over unto the other side of the lake, and they launched forth. Go to Matthew chapter 8, if you would. We'll notice another parallel passage. Matthew chapter 8. You're there in Luke 8. Just flip over to Matthew chapter 8. I want you to notice, it was Jesus' idea to begin with for them to get on a ship. In fact, if you study the Gospels and you study the stories, because this is not the only story in which the disciples find themselves on the Sea of Galilee in the midst of a ship. If you study those stories, you'll find that often when these paid professional fishermen find themselves on a ship scared and afraid in the midst of a storm, afraid of what may happen or that they might not survive. It is often Jesus who puts them there. It is Jesus who had this idea, hey, let's get on this ship and let's go across the lake to the other side. There's another story where Jesus is not with them. You're familiar with the story where Jesus comes out to them walking on water in the midst of a storm. And in that story, it was Jesus' idea for them to get on the ship. It was his idea for them to go across. I don't know about these disciples, but if I was one of these disciples, anytime Jesus said, hey, why don't you guys get on a ship, I'd start being a little worried, you know? Like, sounds like every time he has, every time he wants to go sailing, you know, there's going to be some sort of a storm and he's setting them up for something. In Matthew 8 and verse 18, notice what the Bible says. Now, when Jesus saw great multitudes about him, notice how it's worded here in Matthew 8, 18. He gave commandment. It's not just a suggestion. It wasn't just an idea like, hey guys, I've got an idea. What do you guys think about this? No, no. The Bible says, he gave commandment to depart unto the other side. See, it was Jesus who commanded them, get on the ship, 
get out to sea. We're going to go on this trip. It was Jesus who said unto them, let us go unto the other side of the lake. And a lesson that we can learn to get through the storms of life is that we've got to trust the purpose that Jesus has. Hey, if Jesus tells you, get on a ship, let us go over unto the other side of the lake, and you get halfway through that lake, and a big storm comes through, and you feel like your life's in jeopardy, you've got to trust the fact that Jesus said, we're going over. You've got to trust His purpose. You've got to trust His promise. You've got to trust the fact that He's the one that told you to do it. Go to Exodus chapter 5 if you would. The second book in the Bible should be fairly easy to find. Exodus, if you're in Genesis, then the book of Exodus, Exodus chapter 5. See, what often happens in the Christian life is that God tells you to do something. God tells you to step out in faith. God tells you, He commands you even, through His Word, to do something. And you set out in faith, obeying the Lord Jesus Christ, and you get about halfway there, and all of a sudden things start falling apart. All of a sudden the storm comes in, the storm sweeps in, and now it doesn't seem like a good idea. Now it seems like the guy who told you to get on the ship is asleep. So what do you do? How do you get through the storms of life? You've got to trust his purpose. You've got to trust the fact that he's the one that told you to do it. He told you to get on that ship. He told you to have those children. He told you to uh, have that marriage. He told you to start that ministry. He told you to, to do the things that you're doing, and you just got to trust that he's got a plan, he's got a purpose, and if he tells you to get on the other side, you're going to make it. See, the truth is that in the Christian life, when we begin to work for God, you've got to understand this. And I've had to learn this the hard way in ministry, that sometimes, and in fact, oftentimes, things get worse before they get better. Exodus 5, are you there? Exodus chapter 5, look at verse 21. Exodus 5 and verse 21, the Bible says, And they said unto them. I want to just give you a little bit of the context here. The they there is referring to the elders of Israel. The them there is referring to Moses and Aaron. Now in Exodus 5, we just had God appear to Moses and God told Moses to go down into Egypt and to bring his people out of Egypt to talk to Pharaoh to bring his people out. God has brought Moses and Aaron together, Aaron's, uh, Moses' brother. They go down there, but before they go to Egypt, they meet, and I'm not going to take the time to show this all to you. You can look at it if you'd like. In chapter 4, they meet with the elders of Israel. And when they meet with the elders of Israel, they announce to the elders of Israel that God has sent them to free and bring out the people. Aaron shows them some signs and some miracles. And these men, these elders of Israel, get excited. The Bible says in chapter 4 that they believe Moses. And they get excited. The Bible says they bow their heads and they worship God. And they're excited about the fact that God has sent Moses and Aaron to deliver his people out of Egypt. But Moses and Aaron go to Pharaoh. They say those famous words, Thus saith the Lord, let my people go. And Pharaoh's response is not favorable. Pharaoh's response is, Who is the Lord that I should obey him? Pharaoh's response is, 
These slaves must be idle. They're asking for time off. They must not be busy enough. And, and Pharaoh, in his cruelty, decides that the children of Israel have to continue to work in the same way that they've been working, but where before they were providing bricks for them. Now they have to go find their own bricks. They've got to go make their own bricks. And when the elders of Israel are unable to produce what they were producing before when bricks were being supplied to them, and now they have to make their own bricks, and they're still being required to put out the same amount of results, when, they, when that doesn't happen, the elders of Israel begin to be beaten by the Egyptians. Now you have the elders of Israel who in chapter 4, the Bible says, they bowed their heads and worshiped. They believed Moses and they were happy about the fact that God brought Moses to the children of Israel to bring them out of Egypt. Now these same men find themselves in a storm. They were excited about the fact that God was going to deliver his people, but they did not account for the fact that sometimes things get worse before they get better. Notice their response, Exodus 5, verse 21. And they, the elders of Israel, said unto them, The Lord look upon you and judge, because ye have made our savor to be abhorred in the eyes of Pharaoh, in the eyes of his servants, to put a sword in their hand to slay us. They look at Moses and they say, You've turned Pharaoh against us. You've made things harder for us, Moses. Look at verse 22. Notice how Moses responds. And Moses returned unto the Lord and said, Lord, wherefore hast thou so evil entreated this people? Why is it that thou hast sent me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in thy name, he hath done evil to this people. Neither hast thou delivered thy people at all. Moses is here discouraged. He says, God, why did you even send me here? Things have gotten worse. They were already in slavery, and I was supposed to deliver them. But since I got here, things have gotten worse for them. I understand Moses' frustration. I've had to learn this the hard way in ministry. Oftentimes people come to our church, and they've got situations. They need some biblical guidance. They need some biblical counsel, and they ask questions. What do you think I should do about this? And what do you think I should do about that? What should I do about my marriage? And what should I do about... My children, and what should I do about this? And we do our best to say, well, here's what the Bible says, and God says you should do X, Y, and Z. And what I had to learn the hard way, I've been in ministry now for over 11 years, and now I'm a little more used to it, but what really caught me off guard at the beginning was that oftentimes people would come here, and they would say, I need help, and they would say, I don't know what to do. What should I do in this situation? And what should I do in that situation? What should I do with my finances here? What should I do with this relationship? And we just tell them, well, here's what the Bible says. The Bible says do X, Y, and Z, and then they go off to do it, and then things get worse. And then the relationship gets worse with their spouse. And then the relationship gets worse with their children. And the relationship gets worse in the situation they're dealing with because things often get worse before they get better. And my wife and I have looked up to heaven at times and said, why are we here, God? Ever since we started ministering to these people, nothing's gotten better. Things have just gotten worse. What do you do... When you're doing what God has called you to do, when you're doing what God has told you to do, you're following the word of God and doing what God told you to do in the word of God, and then things get worse. What do you do? Say, you quit. Say, ah, it doesn't work. You give up. 
Now, see, in the midst of those storms, you've got to trust the purposes of God. Amen. You've got to have the faith to say, I know things don't look good right now, but we're doing what God has called us to do. We're going to keep doing what God has called us to do, and we're just going to trust God. Amen. Go to Job, if you would. I'm not sure if you kept your place in Psalms. I meant to ask you to keep your place in Psalms. But right before Psalms, you have the book of Job. Do me a favor, put a ribbon or a bookmark or something in Job because we're going to leave it and we're going to come back to it. And I was preparing for this sermon I was thinking about. The first major trial that my wife and I went through in ministry. We've gone through many trials, as many of you know, in ministry. And to be honest with you, our first major trial seems very small in comparison to the things we've dealt with since then. But I remember the first trial, the first real storm that our church went through. We started our church in September of 2010, and we started in our living room. Just a handful of people meeting in the living room, and my wife and I were, were, were young. Uh, we we're 25 years old when we started this church. We had uh, two little boys, and we started Verity Baptist Church, started meeting our living room, started knocking doors and inviting people to church and preaching the gospel and doing what God had called us to do. And about 18 months into our ministry, there meeting in our living room, our church was averaging around 35 to 40 in attendance in our living room. And we decided that it was time to, by faith, move out of our living room and to rent our first building. We we'll rent our first building just right not too far from here on Northgate Boulevard. It was an 800-square-foot building, not much bigger than our living room was, and really had less to do with uh, the, the space and more to do with the fact that we were just moving the church out of our house and uh, we could get our house back. Uh, for those 18 months of the church men in our house, we had no furniture. We had a little dining room table that we would carry out during church time and carry back in when there was no church. Uh, we had just a bunch of folding chairs that we would fold up, and that was our living room for, for, a, for a while. And it was nice to be able to move into uh, a building, just a little 800-square-foot building. And uh, we moved into our first building, and we were excited. Our very last service in our house was our 4th of July service uh, uh, that the, the year that we, that we moved out, and I, I, I want to say we had like 45 in church that night um, in our house on Wednesday night on 4th of July. We moved into our first building, and that September, that first September, we were there. We moved into our building in July. We spent July there, August. And September was our church's anniversary, our family and friend day, and we had our, our anniversary Sunday where we celebrated the church's anniversary. And at that anniversary service, we had 75 people in attendance, 75 people in uh, that little 800-square-foot building. And we were just, you know, thinking that the Lord was just blessing us. And I mean, it was going to be a matter of time before running 100. It's going to be a matter of time before running uh, 150, and I mean, we were, we were just a, a small church growing, and then things got bad, and then we dealt with what I would consider the first real trial of our church. Within weeks of that first, of that big anniversary day where we had 75 in attendance, within weeks, we dropped down to averaging 25 in church. 
I mean, we were averaging less in church in a building than we were averaging in our living room. And you better believe, as I was writing those rent checks, I was thinking to myself, why did we even leave the living room? Why did, we, why did I sign a lease for this building? Why did I put ourselves in this? I mean, we, we, we've got less people coming to a building than we had in our living room. I remember in those months from September to December, those very dark months for us in, in, in ministry, we had one lady that told us she was quitting the church because she didn't like the fact that we left the house. She liked church in the house, and when we left the house with the purposes of growing, she said, I'm quitting the church because I don't like the fact you left the house. We had another family that told us that the church atmosphere changed once we got into the building, uh, so they were going to be leaving our church, and it really is an excuse. They were just backslidden, but they quit uh, on us. We had a couple of faithful families that the Lord had blessed us with, and um, they were a great help, but they had to uh, move away. One uh, was in the military, and they got transferred. It wasn't their choice, but they got transferred, and, and they had to leave. And we had a family that was Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, faithful, soul winning. They uh, led the music, and they got transferred, and, and they had to go. We had another lady, faithful lady, uh, Jovita. Remember her to, to, we remember her to this day. She was our, our very first service when we started and uh, she, her, she's a Filipino lady, and her husband said, we're moving to the Philippines. She had no choice. She didn't really want to go, but of course she had to go with her husband, and, 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 and she left. And we just started having all these people just leave. And honestly, I felt like we had a church split. I mean, we didn't have a church split, but that's what it felt like. It felt like we had this church split. Back in those days, I was working a job where uh, I was working HVAC, and uh, through that summer time, it was extremely uh, busy time, and I was, I was working 12, 14, 16-hour days, I mean, pretty much every day, even on, on Sundays. Uh, I struck a deal with my boss, telling him, like, hey, I'm a pastor. I can't miss church, you know. I got I to gotta be at church to preach. But we had this deal where I would, you know, start work at 5 in the morning on Sunday morning, and I'd get off at around 9.15 or 9.20, just in time to leave come home or come to the building. My wife would have my uh, suit for me. I'd change out of my work clothes into my, into my preaching clothes, and we'd have the Sunday morning service. She'd have a sandwich or something for me. I'd go back to work, work from about 12.30 till about 5, and got back home in time for the Sunday night service. On Wednesday night, same thing. I'd come in maybe 15 minutes before the service started, and my wife would have my suit for me, and I, and I would grab it, and, and, and those, were, those were difficult times. Those were difficult times for me. Those were difficult times for my wife. We had a brand new baby, brand, uh, just little uh, newborn baby, and my wife was pretty much, honestly, and, and I'm even ashamed to say this, she was pretty much doing, other than writing the sermons and preaching, at that time when I was working 16-hour days, she was doing everything for the church. She was cleaning it. She was setting it up. She was making the bulletins. She, we didn't have staff. We didn't have anything. She, I mean, I wrote the sermons as I drove doing my work, and, and, and she got everything else set up, and she had a little newborn baby and two little boys. And uh, we had, I remember we had a family who came, and they seemed like a, a nice family, and they got, had some kids, and, and they were faithful. They didn't like the fact that we were family integrated. They tried to pressure us into starting a nursery. We said, no, we're not going to start a nursery. We're, not, we're just not family integrated. It's not what we believe. And they quit and went to a church down the street because they had a nursery. And it, it, it was a hard time. I remember working out in the Bay Area on a Saturday. I remember 
one of the lowest, the lowest kind of points. I remember working out in the Bay Area doing HVAC, and I spent about 14 hours on a Saturday doing HVAC. And I remember just driving back on a Saturday night. I hadn't gone soul winning. My wife obviously hadn't gone soul winning. She had a little newborn baby and kids. And nobody had gone soul winning. And I remember just driving home as the sun was kind of going down and just thinking to myself, this is not going to work. Like, this is just, we're going to fail. And to be honest with you, I kind of remember just kind of thinking to myself, like, carest thou not that we perish? Are you even paying attention to this? I mean, do you understand? Like, this isn't going to work. This is not working. Why did I do this? Say, what do you do? When you set out by faith to do what you believe God has called you to do, and all of a sudden, everything begins to fall apart, what do you do? Well, what you do is the only thing a faithful Christian can do is trust God's purpose. I don't, I don't know what God was doing. I knew this. God told us to start Verity Baptist Church. God's the one that put that on my heart. That, God's the one that, that gave us that, uh, that thought and that idea. And I'm just here to tell you, some, sometimes things are not going well, and you just got to trust God. Job 13. Remember Job? He's serving the Lord, doing everything he's supposed to be doing. Loses his children, loses his wealth. Loses his health. His wife turns on him. His friends turn on him. Nothing seems to be going well in Job's life. And in Job 13 and verse 15, he makes this statement of faith. He says, though he slay me. I mean, think about that. Job is saying, I don't know what God is doing. I don't know why God is doing this. I don't know why God is allowing this. But even if God kills me, even if God takes my life, he says, though he slay me, yet will I trust in him. I'm just here to tell you, you're going to have times in your life when you think, believe that things are not going well. When you're wondering if God is even paying attention. You say, what do you do? How do you get through the storms of life? You've got to trust his purpose. If, he to- if he's the one that told you to get on the ship, if he's the one that told you to make the journey, if he's the one that put you there and put you in that position, put you in that ship, in that lake, on that storm, then you just got to trust his purpose. But I want you to notice, secondly, tonight, keep your place right there in Job. We're going to come back to it. Go back to Luke chapter 8. Say, so how do you handle the storms of life? Well, you've got to trust his purpose. By the way, we had one lady during those days. I think she started to see that. People were just leaving. She was a three to thrive, Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night. All of a sudden, she decided, yeah, I'm going to be Sunday morning. She announced to us, I'm just going to be Sunday morning only from now on. I think to myself, like, well, that's, that's encouraging. <laughs> that's really the time to get backslidden, lady. Thanks. Number one, you've got to trust his purpose. Number two, you've got to trust his presence. Notice Luke chapter 8 and verse 23. But as they sailed, he fell asleep. And there came down a storm of wind on the lake, and they were filled with water and were in jeopardy. And they came to him. They came to him. See, Jesus was right there with them. They came to him and awoke him, saying, Master, Master, we perish. 
Now, at this point, they understand that Jesus is more than just a man. And I don't know how much exactly they understood of the theology, but they understood that there was something special about Jesus. They understood the fact that this was the man that performed miracles. This was the man that preached for the word of God. They understood that he, he was not just a, a man. And, and, and they have him asleep on the ship, and they're afraid. But I'm here to tell you something. If they weren't going to trust his purpose, if they weren't going to trust his promise, if they weren't going to trust the fact that he said, hey, we're going to the other side, then they could have at least trusted his presence. I mean, they were afraid that they were going to die. But they should have stopped to think, wait a minute, the Son of God is with us. Yeah, he's asleep. But the anointed one, the Christ, the Messiah, is on this ship. If we die, he dies. If they weren't going to trust his promise, they should have trusted his presence. And they came to him and awoke him, saying, Master, Master, we perish. Go to Job 23, if you would. Job 23. See, sometimes when we're in the midst of a storm, it's hard for us to feel like God is with us. The Bible tells us God is with us. The Bible says, for he has said, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. But sometimes we feel like God is far. Sometimes we feel like we can't feel His presence. We can't see Him with us. We don't uh, know if He's there. Notice Job during his storm of life. Notice what Job says in Job 23 and verse 3. He says, Oh, that I knew where I might find Him. Job is feeling very lonely. Job feels like, Is God awake? Is God asleep? Is God missing in action? He says, oh, that I knew where I might find him, that I might come even to his seat. Look at verse 8, same chapter. He says, behold, I go forward, but he is not there, and backward, but I cannot perceive him. On the left hand, where he doth work, but I cannot behold him. Notice what Job says. He says, he hideth himself on the right hand, that I cannot see him. Job says, hey, I feel like God's not with me. I, I, I go forward, and I don't see him. I go backwards, and I don't see him. I look to my left, I look to my right, and I just don't feel like God is with me. It's interesting to me that Job's biggest complaint, though he had lost all his children, lost all his health, lost all his wealth, his biggest complaint was that he felt like God was far away. Felt like God was just not interested. And look, I'm here to tell you, sometimes we feel like that. Sometimes we think, does God know what's going on? Does God watching this? Does God understand what I'm going through? You may feel like you don't know where God is. But you can always know that God knows where you are. Job says, I, I go forward, but he is not there. And backward, but I cannot perceive him. He, on the left hand where he does work, but I cannot behold him. He hides himself in the right hand that I cannot see him. But notice what he says in verse 10. Job 23 and verse 10. He says, but, Job says, but, here's what I know. I don't know where God is. I can't perceive that God is with me. I don't know if God's paying attention. But here's what I know. He knoweth the way that I take. When he hath tried me, I shall come forth as gold. See, these guys felt like Jesus is asleep. But here's what they should have known. Jesus knows exactly where we're at. God knows exactly where I am. I don't understand why this storm is happening. I don't understand if we're going to make it through this thing. I don't understand what God is doing. But I can trust his purpose and I can trust his presence. Hey, if Jesus goes with me, I'll go. 
I can trust the fact that he's with us. I want you to notice thirdly tonight, go back to Luke chapter 8. How do you handle the storms of life? You've got to trust his purpose. You've got to trust that he's the one that set you in the course that you find yourself in. You say, oh, my marriage is not going well. Well, you know what? Here's what I can tell you. The, the marriage you're in is God's will for your life. Well, it's the storms of life. You just trust his purpose. You trust the fact that he puts you on that path, and you just believe that God has a plan for you. So I can't trust his purpose. Okay, then how about you trust his presence? How about you trust the fact that he's with you on the ship? You might feel like he's asleep, but he's with you. And if he's with you, it's going to be okay. I want you to notice thirdly tonight, sometimes when we're going through the storms of life, we can trust his purpose, we can trust his presence. Thirdly, I want you to notice that if you can't trust his purpose, you can't trust his presence, you can always trust his peace. Amen. See, in Luke 8, 23, I think this is the, I don't know, maybe the most interesting part of this story, is that Jesus literally fell asleep. Luke 8, 23. But as he sailed, he fell asleep. We saw it in Mark 4, 38. You don't have to turn there. And he was in the hinder parts of the ship, asleep on a pillow. I mean, I love the Lord Jesus Christ and all respect to the Lord Jesus Christ, but when I read it, I think to myself, well, that's cute. Here you have these grown men afraid that they're going to die. And they get back there, and he's on a pillow. I mean, it's comical. Asleep on a pillow. And they awake him and say unto him, Master, carest thou not that we perish? You say, what is, what, what's up with Jesus being asleep? And I think there's a lesson that Jesus is trying to teach us, and it is this. You and I need to understand something about God. And we need to understand something about the Lord Jesus Christ. That he is not worried about what you are worried about. Amen. Jesus is not concerned with what you are concerned about. The things you're running around like a chicken with your head cut off. You're like, well, what's going on? What are we going to do? How is this, the economy this and the war that? All the things that we worry about, he's not worried about. See, the reason that we often feel like God is asleep at the wheel is because he's not concerned with what you're concerned. He's not afraid of what you're afraid. He's not a wor- uh, a worried about what you're worried about. He doesn't suffer anxiety with the things that you and I suffer anxiety about. See, his sleep should actually give us confidence. They should have walked into that ship and thought to themselves, well, Jesus isn't worried. In fact, he's so not worried, he's asleep. If they could not trust his purpose, if they could not trust his presence, they could have trusted his peace. Go to Philippians, if you would, Philippians chapter 4. In the New Testament, you've got Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, 1st, 2nd Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, 1st, 2nd Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians. Sometimes we cry out to God, God, why, why are you not worried? God, why are you not upset? God, why are you not concerned? What we should be saying is, thank God that he's not worried. Amen. Thank God that he's not concerned. Thank God that he's not afraid. The things that make me afraid, he's not afraid. 
See, when we can rely upon his purpose and his presence and his peace, then we can experience his peace. Philippians 4 and verse 7, notice what the Bible says. And the peace of God, which passeth all understanding, shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. See, the, the peace of God passeth all understanding. It's an uncomprehensible peace. It's kind of like being on a sinking ship and taking a nap on a pillow, just not worried. And I'm just here to tell you something, that you may be worried, you may be afraid, you may be frustrated, you may be scared, you may be upset, you may be anxious, but Jesus is none of those things. The things have got you all wound up, he's just not concerned about. The Bible says, casting all your care upon him, for he careth for you. See, if they could not trust his purpose, they should have trusted his presence. If they could not trust his presence, they should have trusted his peace. And if they can't trust his peace, here's number four. Go back to Luke chapter eight. You can always trust his power. Notice the story, Luke 8, 24. And they came to him and woke him, saying, Master, Master, we perish. Then he arose. I, you know, the Bible doesn't tell us this. I don't know if this is, but I would imagine that Jesus may be a little irritated. He's a busy guy. He's been preaching a lot of sermons, ministering to a lot of people. And now he finally gets some alone time on a ship. They're going to go over. He told them, get on the ship. We're going to go to the other side. He needs to get some rest. And they wake him up. And the Bible says that he arose. You say, why do you think he was irritated? Just notice the, the words here. And rebuke the wind and the raging of the water. Notice the power of our Savior. And they ceased. And there was a calm. Notice, notice just something in this, in this miracle. See, the winds would come into the Sea of Galilee. If you understand kind of the area of that, the, the geographical area of, of Palestine, you'll know that there are mountains and caverns that kind of circle this Sea of Galilee. And the winds would, would come in through those uh, mountains kind of funneled in. That's why the Bible says that the that the wind went into, went onto the Sea of Galilee. And the winds, it was what's causing the commotion. It's what's causing the storm. And if Jesus, the Bible tells us that he rebuked the wind, if he just simply would have made the winds to cease, that would have been powerful enough. But to make the winds to cease would not have necessarily caused the waters to be calm. Because to simply make the winds to cease, you would still have the waters raging you still have the waters in commotion from the storm. It would take some time. But that's that he rebuked the wind and the raging of the water. And the wind ceased and the water was calm. The power of Jesus. Look at verse 25. And he said unto them, this is why I think he's irritated. Why did you wake me up? That's not what he said. He said unto them, where is your faith? And they being afraid, notice, they being afraid. Just, just understand something. People that tend to be afraid are always afraid. 
It doesn't matter what you're going through. See, see, pe people who are just faithful, they're just going to stick with it. They've got tenacity. It doesn't matter what they're going through. It doesn't matter what this storm happens to bring upon their life. It doesn't matter what the next storm happens to bring upon their life. It doesn't matter what the next storm is going to bring because their faith is in God. But people who get shaken by a storm get shaken by every storm. These guys, you, you look at it and, you know, I'm frustrated that they woke Jesus up because they're afraid. We're afraid. We're afraid. We're afraid that the wind carries out not that we perish. We're in jeopardy. And then he calms the storm, verse 25, and he said unto them, where is your faith? And they being afraid. They're still afraid. Now, finally, here they're afraid of who they should be afraid, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. And they being afraid wondered, saying one to another, what manner of man is this? For he commandeth even the winds and the waters, and they obey him. See, here's the truth. If Jesus can calm the storm, and he chooses not to, then we have to believe that he knows best. Go to 2 Corinthians chapter 12, if you would. I'm not sure if you kept your place in Philippians, but if you kept your place in Philippians, if you go backwards, you have Ephesians, Galatians, 2 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians. I've often taught you this before. Faith is not believing that God will. Faith is believing that God can. Faith is not believing that God will. That's you trying to control God. Faith is not believing that God will. God, I have faith. I believe God will do X, Y, and Z. I believe God will. Be very careful about making these statements. If God will, if God... You know what? God wills whatever God wills. God decides whatever God decides. I'm not God and you're not God. Oftentimes people, they get this idea. People say, and look, I, I've used this example before, and, and if you've said this, I'm not against you. It's just, it's something I hear a lot. We've got, you know, you, you get these ladies, praise the Lord for them, and they get pregnant, and they got, and, and people ask, you know, is it, is it a boy? Is it a girl? And, and, and people often say this, and I'm not, if you've said this, I'm not attacking you. I, I can't even think of any of your church that, that said this. I've just heard this. And people often say, well, it doesn't matter if it's a boy or it's a girl, as long as it's healthy. And I always think to myself, and if it's not healthy, then what? Then God isn't God? Then God owes you something? I mean, what if God chooses to give you a baby that's not healthy? See, our attitude needs to be like the attitude of Job. The Lord giveth, the Lord taketh away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Amen. We're not going to put God in some corner and say, well, God better. No, no. Faith is not believing that God will. Faith is believing that God can. And faith is trusting God if he chooses not to. Amen. 2 Corinthians 12 and verse 8. Remember our friend Paul? Paul found himself with a thorn in the flesh. 2 Corinthians 12, 8. For this thing I besought the Lord thrice that it might depart from me. And he, God, said unto me, Paul, my grace is sufficient for thee. For my strength is made perfect in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Here we have Paul who had been used of God to heal other people. And when he asked God to heal him, God said, no. I've got a plan and I've got a purpose for this thorn. My grace is sufficient for thee. And Paul's response is, I will rather glory in mine infirmities. Look, look, faith is not believing that God will. Faith is believing that God can 
And true faith is still trusting God when he chooses not to. See, if God can calm the storm, he may calm the storm. But God may choose for you to go through that storm. God chose for Paul to have this thorn in the flesh. Go to Luke chapter 8. Luke chapter 8. See, this is what we often pray when the storms of life come. We pray, God, take the storm away! When sometimes God doesn't want to take the storm away away from you, he wants to go through the storm with you. I often think of the children of Israel the three children of Israel in the fiery furnace. See, you and I, we'd be praying when Nebuchadnezzar would throw us in the fiery furnace. We'd be praying, don't let me go in the furnace, God. Don't let me go in the furnace. Please, don't let me go in the furnace. That's what we would pray. Please don't let me throw them in the... Don't let them throw me in that furnace. Don't let them throw me in that furnace. And then, and then they get thrown in the furnace and their faith is shaken and all of a sudden, well, God failed us. But no, that's not that God failed you. It's that God allowed you to go in the furnace and then the fourth man met them there. And then the Son of God met them in the furnace. See, sometimes it is in the furnace when you get closest to God. Sometimes it is in the furnace when you get your faith grows and your faith is deepened. Sometimes in the furnace, in the storms of life, is where you learn the lessons that God wants you to have. So we pray, Lord, don't give me the storm. Don't let me go through the storm. And God says, no, maybe I want you to go through the storm. And maybe I just want to go through the storm with you. Maybe I want you in the furnace so that the fourth man can show up, so that the Son of God can meet you there, so that you can come out of the furnace with renewed faith, with a testimony. You say, how do you go through the storms of life? See, we must trust his purpose. We must trust his promise. We must trust his presence. We must trust his peace. We must trust his power. And though I've given you an alliterated sermon, I want you to understand that the key word is not purpose, presence, promise, peace, or power. The key word is trust. Luke 8, 25. And he said unto them, here's the problem with the storms of life. He said unto them, where is your faith? The problem was not the storm. The problem was not the fact that, they were, that he was asleep. The problem was that they struggled with their faith. The reason we struggle through the storms of life is because we lack faith. We must renew our faith. We must understand, hey, God put him there. God put me there. God put 25, a 25-year-old pastor and his young wife Pastoring virtually, I mean, just a failure, almost no one, a handful of people. Our success was we grew a church to 75 and back down to 25. And we could have quit right then and there. And we could have decided this was not what I signed up for. And this is not what I want to do. And I want to be done. And we're going to go do something else. But many of you would not have been saved. Most of you would not have been saved. 
There would be no church in Vancouver, Washington. There would be no church in Boise, Idaho. There would be no church in Fresno, California. There would be no church in Manila, uh, Philippines. There would be no church in Pampanga. There would be no church in Bicol. I'm just here to tell you, sometimes God wants to put you through a storm and to strengthen your faith and to help you understand. We've got to trust Him. Where is your faith? With faith, we would stop asking God to remove the storms. With faith, we would just learn to go through the storms. See, you know what Jesus wanted? He wanted to sleep. (laughs) They were going to make it. He wanted them to trust that he was with them. But they, they didn't trust. They didn't have faith. So he had, they had to wake him up. He had to show them, hey, I'm in control. And he was frustrated. Where is your faith? Because they didn't need to wake him up. They didn't need him to perform this miracle. They needed to just trust in him. And that's what you need. And that's what I need. As we go through the storms of life, sometimes God will take us around the storm. Sometimes he'll perform a miracle and remove the storms. And sometimes he just wants to meet you in that fiery furnace and grow you through the storms. Let's bow our heads and have a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you for the story. Because of the fact that in the Christian life, we just struggle with the storms of life. There are difficulties. There are hardships. Lord, I know it. There are hard times that come upon us. And sometimes we want to quit, and sometimes we feel like God is just not with us. But Lord, I pray you'd help us. I pray you'd help us to recognize the storms of life and to see them as an opportunity to strengthen our faith in you. Because faith is not believing that God will. It's simply believing that God can and being okay with it if God chooses not to. Lord, I pray you'd help us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.